We continue in this study of Jesus' words in Matthew 10, 34-39, part 2. I did not come to bring peace on the earth. 10.34 Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ, and thank you for his words here. We pray, Lord, that we will understand them, we will believe them, and we will find the strength we need by your grace to carry out his words wholeheartedly. May we love you with all our heart and soul and might, according to these words. In the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior, amen. In this uh, series, in part two of this, we are going to study first a couple of preliminary matters in reference to this subject. Continuing from last time, Last time, we covered some issues in relation to true and false peace. We're going to pick up here now on what true peace is and the fact that we ought to be ready to have conflict while we pursue true peace. Last time, we saw some differences and especially what false peace is. Now, this time, what is true peace? Because at this time of year, at the Christmas time of year, people are talking about peace, peace, love, hope, joy. But what is true peace? We're not in denial mode. We do know that the Bible speaks of true peace. But what is this true peace? May we summarize. From Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we learn that Christ is called the Prince of Peace, which is very true. He is the Prince of Peace. But what is the peace that he supplies and provides? Romans 5.1 explains, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. That is, we were at enmity with God. We were his enemies. Now, we are not. Romans 5.6 calls us ungodly. Romans 5.8 calls us sinners. Romans 5.10 calls us enemies. We were enemies. So in this way, we did not have peace with God because of our sins. And God's wrath was against us. However, now we have peace with God in Christ. Romans 5.11. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is true peace. When a man, a sinful man, an ungodly man, an enemy of God, becomes a friend of God through redemption in Christ. That is the peace that Christ provides as the Prince of Peace. He also provides peace with one another. Ephesians 2, 11 
Ephesians 2, 11 to 22 explains, and we'll pick up and read excerpts from it. Here, the context is Jew and Gentile being at odds, being at enmity with each other. But Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He himself is our peace, which makes Jew and Gentile one in Christ. Verse 17, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. That's verses 17 and 18. Now we have peace with one another, Jew and Gentile alike. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, also speaks of this peace. And in verse 3, it speaks of this peace in chapter 4 in the local church. Peace and harmony, love between one another in the local church. In verse 3, Ephesians 4, 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is true peace in the local church. Moreover, this peace extends both within the local church, but also to others. Romans 12, 18. Romans 12, 18. Peace that extends from the individual to the local church, but then to all others. It says in Romans 12, 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. As far as it is possible, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. We are to strive for that. We want peace with everyone. We don't want conflict. We don't want upheaval. We don't want persecution. We want peace with all. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. We are to be peacemakers, reconciling men to God and reconciling men to one another. Wherever we go, we are to be peacemakers. And this peacemaking task of ours is so important that there is no salvation without it. Because it says in Hebrews 12, 14, Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Pursue peace and sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So though we are putting peace in its proper context, no one should doubt or no one should accuse us falsely of not believing in peace. We do believe in peace. We believe in true biblical peace. Not false, not fake, not worldly and carnal, superficial peace, but the true peace of God. That's one point of introduction. Another point of introduction has to do with the fact that we certainly will be persecuted. When we 
follow Christ, when we love Christ, when we do that which is according to his word, there will certainly be persecution. So though our goal, our desire is to have peace within ourselves, between us and God and with others, yet it's not always going to happen. There will certainly be persecution. There will certainly be strife. There will certainly be conflict and animosity between us and others, even in our own families. Psalm 69, 20 to 21. This is Christ. Christ says these words in his prayer. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. When Christ was in his moment of desperation, when he was being tortured and prepared for crucifixion, where was everybody? It says there, In verse 20, I looked for sympathy, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. At his lowest point, being tortured and prepared for crucifixion, everybody fled. His comforters, his friends, his family, no one was there to offer him sympathy at all, even by the visual near presence of them. Yes, later they did show up. But there were times and a significant amount of time when he was at this point of desperation, being all alone, nobody was around. Nobody. Not even his mother, who is practically worshipped at Christmas time. Not even his mother, his own mother, who supposedly has no original sin, and who supposedly was assumed into heaven, ascended into heaven, just like Jesus ascended into heaven and did not experience death, who supposedly hears our prayers, who supposedly receives the praise and thanksgiving of songs, according to those who worship Mary during Christmas. She wasn't even there according to Psalm 69.20, and even according to the testimony of the evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Yes, later she and John the Apostle were near the cross, as well as a couple of others. They were there near the cross, but not for the most part. No comforters, no sympathy. This happened to Christ himself. And so if Christ himself did not have the faithfulness, the comfort, the sympathy of those who were closest to him, do we think it's going to happen to us? Do you think we're going to always have our close kin accepting us, praising us, comforting us? No. John 15. John 15, 18. John 15, 18 to 21. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. When they don't know God the Father in true salvation, they persecute those who do truly know God the Father, the body of Christ. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This is the way it will be. They hated Christ, even his close relations. They avoided Christ at his lowest times. They even avoided Christ, his closest relatives avoided him, ditched him, had nothing to do with him at times. If it happened to him, it will certainly happen to us. The persecution will come to us. 1 Peter 2, 1 Peter 2, 21. Peter the Apostle also makes this connection between Christ and us. 1 Peter 2, 21. 1 Peter 2, 21 to 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he did not, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Christ was faithful to the end and entrusted himself to God the Father, even when he was persecuted to death. And it says there in 21, he suffered for us, leaving us an example to follow in his steps. He suffered persecution to the point of death. We also must suffer persecution to the point of death. 1 Peter 4, verse 1, 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Christ suffered in the flesh, and he says, arm ourselves, be prepared with the same purpose. They persecuted Christ, maligning him, ridiculing him, putting him to death because he practiced righteousness. They will do the same to us because we practice 
righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.12 And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Matthew 5, 10, well, let's read 9. Matthew 5, 9 to 12. These are the Beatitudes. These are the ways of the blessed life. And ironically, paradoxically, we are told the following as the means of blessing. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's our pursuit. We've already mentioned that. However, look at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me or because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our final source of blessedness in these Beatitudes has to do with being persecuted, just like the prophets were. We're in the same category as the prophets, not in a different category, the same as the prophets, the apostles, and Christ himself. When we live, it says, for the sake of righteousness. Verse 11, on account of me, because of me. Righteousness in Christ. When we live that way and are persecuted, there's a blessing. This is the inevitable. This is what God has ordained. And this is why Christ came into the world. He came into the world for this purpose also. And in this way, Matthew 10, 34 to 39. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. We shall briefly explain this passage and then embark on a journey starting in the book of Genesis and throughout the scriptures. We'll start in Genesis after this brief exposition of Matthew 10. Verse 10, uh, chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is the astonishing statement in verse 34. No one considers this category of what Jesus means here. They think of Jesus in lovey-dovey terms. They think of him in very syrupy terms, sugary terms, candy-coated terms. But the Bible says here, Jesus' own words, and if you have a red-letter edition, the translators are telling you these are the words of Christ. If the context is not already clear, the red letter should make it clear. Jesus is saying, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. What in the world does he mean? He certainly doesn't mean it in the way that people typically mean the word peace. He's saying here that the peace that he came to overturn is the superficial peace between one member of a family and another member of a family. That superficial peace that exists between two members of the same family, even the nuclear family, yes, husband, wife, 
and children, and even the extended family or the relatives, in-laws, distant relatives, whoever is in fellowship in a normal relational sense with one another, he did not come to ensure and to stabilize and to make certain that you are always getting along. Husband with wife, mother with children, father with the in-laws, mother with the in-laws, with cousins and uncles, nephews and nieces. It did not, his purpose was not to make sure that there is always this kind of peace and harmony among relatives. That's what he means. This is what is so not only astonishing, but it is appalling and offensive to the flesh. The people of the world cannot fathom that the loving Lord Jesus Christ, who was God incarnate, therefore he was love incarnate. This loving Lord Jesus Christ would come and preach such a message? But what is the basis of the disharmony? What is the basis of the lack of peace between husband and wife, or between father and daughter, or between son and mother? What is the basis of this conflict and lack of peace? It is Jesus himself. When he says that he came for the purpose of bringing this division or conflict, disharmony, lack of peace among relatives, it has to do with one's relationship to Christ. It has to do with the name of Christ. It has to do with the righteousness of Christ. Verses 37 to 39. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the problem. Whenever father or mother, and even son or daughter, it says in verse 37, which are simple illustrations, common illustrations. He's not being exclusive as he says in verse 35. He's even including in-laws in verse 35. So, father, mother, son, or daughter. When the father tells us something to do and is contrary to the love of Christ, contrary to love and obedience to the commandments of Christ, he's saying here, we ought to, in faith, follow Christ. Follow Christ, not our father. Follow Christ, not our mother. Follow Christ, not our son. Follow Christ, not our daughter. Follow Christ. Whenever there is a conflict, whenever a decision needs to be made, whenever there's a dilemma presented before us, well, my father wants me to do this and that. However, Christ says the opposite. What am I supposed to do? Well, with today's family-first theology, which is actually idolatry, people say, well, God loves uh, our families and we have to honor our families. Didn't God say honor father and mother? Yes, but we don't honor father and mother when they tell us to do something contrary to Christ, contrary to the word of Christ. Then we have to honor Christ and say to father, mother, son, daughter, in-laws, we're sorry, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. We ought to obey God rather than men, Acts 5, 29. That's what we have to say. That's what he means here, that I'm going to follow the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
and not you, don't normally, whatever you tell me, I'm, I'm supposed to do. And I do do it. I want, I want to be happy in doing whatever you want me to do, but not when you contradict the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why he says, if we do love Father above Christ, when Father contradicts Christ, he says, we are not worthy of Christ. He disowns us. Yes, he has spoken of disowning us in verse 32. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. 33, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We either confess Christ or we deny Christ in the presence of our relatives. To what extent? 38 to 39, to death. Yes, it may be our own relatives who put us to death. Verses 38 to 39. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Even to death among our relatives, if they would presume to have that murderous spirit carried out and put us to death, we should die. For Christ. He says, for my sake. Only then will we save our life. And he does mean literal put to death. Look at 10.21. Matthew 10.21. And brother will deliver a brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. 22, and you will be hated by all on account of my name, and it, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Yes, the children, the parents, whoever, they have this superficial love, superficial peace and harmony with us, but when we stand for Christ, their superficiality is exposed. Their candy-coated love for us is exposed and the core of who they are is opened and we'll find that the core of their being is full of poison, is full of worms, is full of maggots that are there to consume us and they will consume us. But we must endure till the end on account of the name of Christ. Because of Christ... Stay faithful to him. That is his exhortation to us and warning to us in Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 34 to 39. This point, we may say, well, we already know that. We already know that. We already believe that. We already know the Bible says that. But the problem is this. It's easy for us to say we already know that. But it's hard for us to say it applies to me. It applies to my situation. It applies to my own father. 
It applies to my own mother. It applies to my own son, my own daughter, my own cousin. It's hard for us to apply it and actually do it. That is where the problem is. That is where the sin is. Not just the problem. It's a sin to say, yes, I understand what the Bible says, but it doesn't apply to me. Are you expecting me to do that? Are you expecting me to never talk to my father again? Are you expecting me never to talk to my daughter again? Are you expecting me to do that? No, it's not. It's not it is not we. It is the Lord in the Bible saying that. And the Bible is full. It is full. It is profuse with so many examples of conflict in families. Where one party, at least one party, is righteous or more righteous than the other party, and there's a conflict. The one side is doing what's right in the sight of the Lord, and the other side is not. And there's a conflict throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament that there is conflict. Our journey will be an expansive journey to see that this is all over the Bible and God has not left us in the dark. Why has God given us so many examples in the Bible? So that we would not use the excuse. Well, I understand what you're saying. I understand what the Bible says. It's just that it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to my situation. Many people will preach it. They will acknowledge it but they refuse to obey it. If it was true of Christ, true of the prophets, true of the apostles, true of many saints, and there are many reminders and exhortations along these lines, then it certainly does apply to us. It applies to every one of us. And therefore, we must pray for the grace of God to do it. To do it without any excuses, without any superficialities. Shall we begin our journey? Begins in the book of Genesis. And we will go through these passages very quickly. I will give the paragraph notes so that we may read in context more carefully um, on our own, but point out the specific verse so that we may go through this journey at some, um, with, with some consistency and, and um, speed. Genesis 3, Genesis 3, 1 to 7. We know of the fall of man, the fall of Adam and Eve, where Adam and Eve were in the garden. Adam and Eve in the garden with the serpent, with Satan. God had already told Adam in chapter 2, 15 to 17, that he was to be in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it and also to receive the command of God on what to do and what not to do in reference to the trees of the garden and then teach Eve. That's clear from chapter 2, 15 to 25. However, once the temptation comes, the test of God and temptation of the devil once that comes in chapter 3, 1 to 7, we see in verse 6. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And also verses 8 and following, they hide themselves, God confronts them and God pronounces curses on them. But how is this an example of conflict or lack of? In this case, it's an example of lack of conflict. When the husband did not prevent the sin, he went along with the sin of his wife. Why? Because he didn't want conflict with his wife. Of course, husbands don't naturally, in their flesh, want conflict with their wife in the flesh. Even in the spirit, they don't want conflict with their wives. Whether in the flesh or whether in the spirit, they don't desire conflict with their wives. And to avoid conflict with the wife, he has conflict with God and causes both of them to have conflict with God. So what's better? It's better for Adam to have conflict with his wife than for Adam to have conflict with God. Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, 1 to 8. This is Cain and Abel. Remember, Abel brought in faith the right offering. Cain, in lack of faith, brought the wrong offering. Then we pick it up at verse 7. When God confronts Cain, this happens. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desires for you, but you must master it. And Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Cain and Abel. When God confronted Cain, God told Cain what he needed to do. He refused to obey God. Abel faithfully obeyed God. And it says, Cain told Abel his brother, rose up against Abel his brother. So here here we have brother against brother. Abel believes in the gospel. He has faith in Christ. And he obeys the word of the Lord to offer the proper offering. Cain refuses to believe in Christ. He refuses to have true faith in Christ and bring the suitable offering to the Lord. Even when God confronted him, he refused to repent and instead he murdered his own brother in the first family that ever existed in Adam and Eve's family. Cain murdered Abel. Because Abel was practicing righteousness in Christ and Cain was not. A perfect example of what Jesus said to us in Matthew chapter 10, that this kind of conflict would arise in our immediate family. Genesis chapter 9. Genesis 9, 20 to 27. Genesis 9, 20 to 27. This is Noah after the flood with his three sons, Noah and his three sons. Noah became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. 
he became drunk and uncovered himself. Then Ham, one of the sons of Noah, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. He saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Why did Ham go and tell his two brothers and not immediately rectify the shame? He could have taken garments and covered his father. Instead, he went to tell his brothers, likely to spread the shame and to ridicule the father. So, 9.24 to 25. Genesis 9.24. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. He knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, Cursed be Canaan, a slave of slaves, he shall be to his brothers. Canaan was a descendant of Ham. Ham, the father of Canaan. Verse 22. Noah curses Canaan. Which, by the way, also became the name of the land of Canaan, the territory in West Asia. So, there is a curse because of Ham's actions against his own father. If he had humility, he would not have done so. Yet he does, contrary in pride. Genesis 13. Genesis chapter 13. Another conflict. This is between Abraham's herdsmen and Lot's herdsmen. Their properties, the whole chapter encompasses this incident. Genesis chapter 13. They have numerous herds and flocks, and the land is unable to sustain them wherever they were living and feeding their flocks. So Abraham proposes that they separate. And he says in verse Verses 7 and 8. 13, 7. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's flock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now, the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. And when he says brothers, he means we are relatives. We are brothers means we are relatives. Genesis eleven twenty seven and twelve five. Eleven twenty seven, it says, Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran, the brother of Abram, is the father of Lot. Twelve verse five says, And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew. So these are relatives in conflict, and Abraham seeks for a resolution. Genesis 19, Genesis 19, at the time of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah, God spares Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, Lot, his wife, and his two daughters, No one else is spared from the city. But notice what happens to Lot's wife. 1926. 1926. But his wife from behind him looked back 
and she became a pillar of salt. To become a pillar of salt, just as Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed and sown with salt, became an indication that she suffered the same penalty as Sodom and Gomorrah. She refused to stay with her husband to keep following her husband, Lot, who was finally spared from Sodom. She refused to follow the righteous Lot according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. He's called righteous Lot three times. Righteous Lot, righteous soul. He was righteous, she was wicked, and God punished her. Not only do we find that, but in 1930 to 38, 1930 to 38, we find that the daughters of Lot, the daughters of Lot commit incest with Lot. They commit incest with Lot. It says... 1932. Uh, well, well, let's begin at 1930. And Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in the cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. And it came about on the morrow that the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. And the firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And as for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Conflict, disharmony. This is not the right way to handle the matter. They're not following their father, the righteous Lot, but making him drunk and committing incest with him and becoming pregnant that way. Genesis chapter 21. 21 verses 8 to 13. 21, 8 to 13. Here, a conflict between Ishmael and Isaac. 21.8, And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, Sarah saw the son of Hagor, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. Therefore she said to Abraham, Drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid, I will make a nation also, because he is your 
descendant. Ishmael is not only mocking, according to verse 9, but it's a mockery of persecution. Because in Galatians 4, 29 to 30, the Apostle Paul calls it persecution. That Ishmael was persecuting Isaac and became a danger to Isaac and Sarah. And that's why Sarah, by the word of the Lord, because the Lord confirms the accuracy and the truthfulness of what Sarah's advising Abraham in verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Sarah's word was a righteous word. Abraham was initially reluctant, but God confirmed it to Abraham. No, listen to your wife. She's telling you what's right and what kind of... Of, of distress. It says, distressed Abraham greatly. Abraham had distress in his soul that he had to send away Hagar and Ishmael from his household. He had to follow the Lord. Sarah had to follow the Lord. Isaac had to follow the Lord, even when it meant breaking up the family, and not having proper communion with the family again. Abraham had to experience that. Genesis 25, Genesis 25, 19 to 26. Genesis 25, 19 to 26. Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac was 40 years old. When he married Rebecca, Rebecca did not conceive for a long time, for 20 years actually. Then we pick it up at verse 22, 25, 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, why then am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people shall be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other, and the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. Now the first came forth red, all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau. And afterward his brother came forth with his hand holding on to his brother's, for, to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Having prayed and waited such a long time, you would think that the parents would be exuberated, full of joy that they have twins in the womb, and likely they were. However, at some point, while she is pregnant with the twins, they are struggling They are fighting each other. There's conflict in the womb between brother and brother, between twin brothers, which is more intense than Cain and Abel, more intense than Ishmael and Isaac. Here, these are twin brothers, Esau and Jacob, firstborn, secondborn, twin brothers, same father, same mother, and born practically at the same time. Twin brothers. And what does God say? There's a struggle or fight going on in the womb. 
which is not unheard of. When twins are in the womb, they fight each other sometimes. When that fighting happens in the womb, why in the world would it happen in the womb? We can understand when they are five years old and they want to fight over a toy. We understand children are that way. We understand when they're teenagers that they don't have control over their passions and senses. They lack control. And two teenagers may fight and punch each other in the face. That may happen. But why in the world in the womb? It did happen, and it does happen in the womb and throughout childhood and throughout life that two brothers would fight in the same family, even twin brothers. Not only that, but we're going to find later it it becomes lethal between Esau and Jacob fighting. We should also say a word about this matter. When people say, well, you don't understand. You don't understand the love of a mother. You don't understand the compassion of a mother. You don't understand that a mother, you know, she, do, she has a certain affinity towards her children or to, towards her daughter or towards her son or toward, toward both that the father doesn't have, that men don't have. You don't understand. Yes, we do understand. What about the compassion of a father when the mothers use that as an excuse? What about the compassion and grief of the father, which they don't understand because they're not men? We do have grief, expressed differently, experienced differently, but we do have it. Moreover, but fathers can't use it as an excuse. Mother, I have compassion on my son. You don't understand You're too harsh with him, and I'm going to maintain this relationship, even though he's an unbeliever and I'm a believer. They can't do that either. But all of that aside, look at this example here. Would it have been valid for Isaac and Rebekah to say to God or to anybody else? No. God told them right here. They have one elect son and one reprobate son. God told them. So if we're going to be accused of lacking compassion, then the ultimate one who lacks compassion is God, who told Isaac and Rebekah when the twins were in the womb, when you should naturally have joy, be overjoyed that you were bearing a child, begetting a child, delivering a child. Normally, that's the joy that people have. But God, we might say, ruined it for them if we're going to accuse God. So this excuse, well, you don't have compassion, you don't understand, it does not fit. It does not fit. Because otherwise, we would have to blame God. Let's move on to 27. 27, 41. This is... The desire for bloodshed in Esau. 27.41 So Esau bore a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother 
Jacob. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Reminds us of Cain and Abel, and even Ishmael and Isaac. Esau bore a grudge and had murderous thoughts. Conflict, which caused in chapter 28 Jacob to flee to another land for 20 years. Look at 2746, another source of conflict. 2746 says, And Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living because of the daughters of Heth. If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Rebekah is saying that the daughters of Heth, the daughters of the Canaanites, the Hethites or Hittites were one ethnic group within Canaan, and sometimes all of the land was known as Hittite land, or the sons of Heth. Well, where is it? Who is it that married like that? 28, 6, 28, verse 6. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take to himself a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he charged him, saying, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and had gone to Padan Aram. So Esau saw that the daughters of Canaan displeased his father Isaac, because he had married among them. And so he saw that they displeased his father. He saw it at this point. Why did he not know beforehand? Certainly he knew, but he's trying to curry the favor of his father. This is the problem. Esau had no concern for godliness, created division in the family, did not practice righteousness. They want Jacob to be spared death and practice righteousness and not marry one of the idolatrous daughters of Canaan or the daughters of Heth and go to Padana Ram among their relatives and perhaps there find a godly woman to marry, which is what he did from chapters 28 to 33. He goes there. Conflict among close relations. relations. Chapter 29. Chapter 29. In chapter 29, in verses 13 to 30, 13 to 30, after Jacob flees to the land of Padanaram, he meets Rachel there, and he loves her. He wants to marry her, not Rachel's sister, Leah. It says in 2920, this was how much Rachel wanted, uh, or Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and loved her. It says, 2920, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Seven years. Seven years of labor to be able to marry Rachel. Well, the time came in 21 to 30 for him to marry her. However, Rachel's father, Laban, the brother of Rebekah, he was a cheat. He was a deceiver, a cheater. 
25. So it came about in the morning that, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served with you? Why then have you deceived me? He brings Leah into the tent. And presumably, she would have had a veil as typical in weddings to have the woman to wear a veil. And there are other circumstances as to why he might have been duped or deceived, but he was deceived during the wedding, during the wedding festival. Deceived by his own uncle and marries the wrong woman. Chapter 30, after he is married to both Leah and Rachel. Chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Now Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children. She became, when she saw that she had borne Jacob no children, she became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? This is the woman he really wanted to marry. He really loved Rachel. Jacob loved Rachel. But now Rachel is being a bit unreasonable. And in her unreasonableness, she is insisting that Jacob is the problem. Give me children or else I die. She's blaming Jacob. And Jacob is anger. Uh, his anger burned against Rachel. This is righteous anger, not unrighteous anger. And then in his answer, he says, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Why are you blaming me? What does Jacob do to his loving wife, his beloved wife? He rebukes her in anger, confronts her in anger. Because she was wrong, he was right. He knew he needed to speak up and tell her what she needed to hear, even though it was his beloved wife, long beloved wife. He wanted the truth known. Chapter 31, conflict with his uncle. This we pick it up in 31.7. Remember, we already saw the earlier example of him, Jacob and Laban. 31.7, Jacob's conflict with his uncle Laban brother of Rebekah. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. In the 20 years that he lived there with Laban, 20 years, seven years for each wife and then six years for all the flocks and herds. 20 years. Laban cheated Jacob, many times, likely 10 is a figure of speech for many times. Yet God did not allow him to hurt me. Conflict with his uncle, the cheater. Chapter 20, or 31, 31, it says in 36 to 42. 36, 31, 36. This is an actual dialogue between Jacob and his uncle Laban. Then Jacob became angry and contended with Laban, and Jacob answered and said to Laban, What is my transgression? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? Though you have 
felt through all my goods, what have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you, your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, nor have I eaten the rams of your flocks. That which was torn of beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. You required it of my hand, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been for me, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God has seen my affliction and the toil of my hands, so he rendered judgment last night. Jacob had to flee secretly away from Laban to get away from him. And he flees with his family, his children, his flocks, everything he owns, he flees. Laban catches up to him, and then this dialogue takes place. And Jacob, in anger, contended with Laban, his uncle, with his uncle. He's not doing it sinfully. He's doing it righteously. But he is telling the uncle what the uncle needs to hear. You are a cheater, and God overcame all of your machinations. You're cheating against me. Because God is on my side, not your side. I lived righteously while you perpetuated wickedness against me. A few more examples in the book of Genesis. Genesis 34, Genesis 34. One of the daughters of Jacob is raped. And the two sons of Jacob who retaliate excessively who retaliate excessively are Simeon and Levi. Simeon and Levi. When they do so, they massacre all of the men of the town, including the man who raped their sister. And notice 34.30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 34.30, You have brought trouble on me by making me odious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and my men being few in number, they will gather together against me and attack me, and I shall be destroyed, I and my household. He, well, they brought trouble on Jacob. His own sons, in their excessive anger, brought trouble on Jacob. On them. It says in Genesis 49, 6 and 7, a further comment on this. 49, 6. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in their anger they slew men, and in their self will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And this is of Again, Simeon and Levi, verses 5 to 7. Simeon and Levi. He puts a curse on his own two sons. Jacob does. In righteousness. 
as a righteous inspired prophet against them. Another example of a curse is in 35.22, Jacob against Reuben. And why? Because of Reuben's sin. 35.22, And it came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Reuben has intercourse with Bilhah, Jacob's wife or concubine. Well, Jacob, he pronounces a curse on him too. Genesis 49, 3 and 4. Genesis 49, 3. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Reuben should have received a double portion, but it was taken away from him. That is the curse. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. First Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, on this matter of Reuben and the curse on him. First Chronicles 5, 1. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he is not enrolled in the genealogy according to the birthright. Though Judah prevailed over his brothers, and from him came the leader, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Joseph received a double blessing, and the double blessing was taken away from Reuben. And our last example comes from Genesis 37, last one in the book of Genesis. 37, 5 to 11. In Genesis 37, 5 to 11, Joseph has dreams. And these dreams are heavenly dreams from God because he is a prophet of God. They're not regular daily dreams. They are coming from God. Genesis 37, 5 to 11. However, when he pronounces the word of the Lord to his brothers, they hate him. They hate him. 37.5 says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Hated him even more. And verse 11, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. The brothers of Jacob. Now we pick it up in verses 18 to 36. What happens in 18 to 36? Joseph and his brothers happen to be in the field far away from their father because they are allowing or finding pasture for their animals to graze. So they are far away from their father And this reminds us of Cain and Abel, where Cain says, let's go into the field. Let's go. And they go into the field, away from the parents and everybody else, so that Cain can murder Abel. Here, it happens in the same way. 
The brothers, notice in verse 18, when they saw him from a distance, Joseph did not initially um, join them. Later he joined his brothers, and his brothers see him approaching from a distance. And before he came close, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Now they're mocking him. Verse 20, now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits and we will say, a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. His own brothers want to do this. And his own brothers are not able to carry through with this. Reuben spares them, spares him and at the time and they, then also Judah has a bright idea. Let's not kill him and say a wild beast devoured him like that. Let's sell him as a slave. Let's make some money. Let's kidnap him and sell him to merchants who will go and take him to a foreign land and sell him there as a slave. Let's all make some money while he's still alive. Off our brother as a slave. Yes, brothers do this to each other, even today. Um, brothers do this to sisters. Fathers do this to sons and daughters. Mothers do this to son, uh, daughters, even infant daughters. This happens even today. Righteousness and wickedness happens even today. And they have s- such callousness, such callousness that they allow their father to be deceived for many years thinking that Joseph was torn by a wild animal. Look at verse 33. Then he examined it and said, It's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Jacob, he sees the garment, the very colored tunic that the father gave, Jacob gave to Joseph, and they dip it in blood, in the blood of an animal, and then take it to their father and say, is this your son's tunic? And the father concludes, it is. And he sees the blood, and the father assumes that the rest of his sons are all innocent, well-behaved, well-mannered sons, and that a wild beast killed Joseph. And they let their father Jacob believe this for many years. How evil can one be to treat one family member like that? One family member treat another family member that way. Yet, it happens. It is true. We'll pick up next time in our series on this subject. But have we seen enough examples where for righteousness' sake, for the name of Christ doing what's right, there will be this kind of animosity, hostility, fighting, warring, battling going on between family member and family member. So we should not be surprised. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father, mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. 
And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. May God help us to be that way, the right way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.